So good morning, Keith. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here and talking with me on your busy day, which I'm sure every day is busy. Pretty busy, but thank you so much for asking me. Well, I'm grateful that you were able to squeeze it in. So I'm here to, I'd ask you to talk to you about um, your experience, um, the variety of things that you do as a published poet and a coffee shop owner, former Somebody said to me the other day, recovering attorney, <laughs> which I thought was pretty brilliant. I'm still licensed to practice. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but you could have a coffee shop? Well, i practice. Just hang the shingle. I have thought about putting up a little sign, legal advice, $5. Yeah, right. $5. That'd be a pretty good deal. So, um, and you own Black Cat Coffee, which is hopping super popular place that I go to now relatively regularly. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led you to kind of you know take the risk of leaving this career you had established and opening a business a coffee shop which is kind of a terrifying thing for a lot of people well i I, yeah i think there's so many different answers to that question um i think the uh i think the first thing to say is that i always sort of thought as my legal career as provisional to begin with, I wasn't um, totally, I was never totally invested in it. Um, I made that decision, most of all the decisions I've made in my life, I've made, um, uh, if they're conscious, I've made them consciously to um, uh, direct my life and improve my writing. So, um, with one exception, and that was to go to law school. And I, and I made that decision uh, for very circumstantial reasons. Um, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. Um, I was working as an adjunct teaching literature at the University of Montana, making upwards of $18,000 a year. Um, we, there was just some writing on the wall and uh, it made, my wife is a very successful novelist. Um, she's published seven novels. But um, it made sense for one of us to have a steady income. And so it was really, um, in some ways, an economic decision, but not exclusively. There was also a little bit of, um, I don't know how to phrase this. Uh, there was a, it was somewhat fear-based, too. And so I went into the uh, I, I went into law school and and I did very very well in law school, um, uh, and because I did very very well in law school, um, it was very easy for me to get a really good job, and um, I never had any intention of being. A civil litigator at a corporate law firm. That's not why I went to law school. I I saw it as more, um, if I had a professional degree of that sort, I could get some sort of job that would pay the bills and enable my wife and myself to write. But I was advised that in order to be a good, successful lawyer, it made sense to take a corporate civil litigator job to be trained as a kind of apprenticeship. So I took that job um, with my eyes open, not 
um, I'm older and I was older when I went to law school. So I wasn't uh, young, hungry and ambitious in the same way that some of my other fellow associates were. I had, I never had any interest in necessarily becoming a partner at Perkins Thompson or getting a corner office at Perkins Thompson. Those were not my goals. Um, and what I quickly discovered, and this is, I think for me, was the great lesson of that mistake, um, was that um, although I could do it well, I wasn't suited to that. And what makes one successful in an environment like that is not necessarily being good at the practice of law as much as being good at surviving and thriving in a corporate environment. And that's not me. Uh, so, um, so it was, uh, but I, you know, but I, but I also, I kept an open mind, um, uh, and, and worked hard and stayed there for seven years. Um, towards the end of that seven years, I started looking around pretty seriously for something else to do. Um, I, um, really did not want to become a partner uh, necessarily um, and uh, my wife and I noticed um, that this neighborhood did not have a coffee shop and we thought that it should have a coffee shop. We even went to a local business that was sort of a hybrid business and told them that if they served coffee they could do a really good business. Um, I have a background in restaurant management. I worked uh, for 10 years, I managed a very successful restaurant in New York. So not coming to it as complete novice. Um, so when, uh, when we saw the space open, the timing was right. Um, I mean, it was perfect, honestly. And it was the perfect space. And we were both sort of ready to jump in. Now, having said that, um, we were very careful about jumping in. Um, I think that fear is a very useful tool in situations like this. We were very methodical and, um, and we made sure that if we were going to lose, we weren't going to lose big. You know, That's we didn't, probably a good idea. <laughs> we didn't push all the chips yeah. into the table on a dream that we had. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, it was almost the opposite of that. Mm. We saw a need that existed that we were suited to fulfill. So it's really not our dream to own a coffee shop, but the neighborhood uh, has responded really well because the community there really wanted a coffee shop so we're able to do something for the community. In that sense, that's a big part of our success, I think. Interesting. So I, I think that's really interesting, I mean, that whole story and the fact that you said it's not your dream so maybe, I mean, is there a chance that you might do something else? I mean, you maybe this is, because some people may not do the, the days of doing the same thing for years and years. You know, we are dynamic, changing human beings and are, we always want new challenges and 
we have different passions. So I'm, you know, maybe you don't need to answer this, but do you envision maybe, you know, all right, I'll get this going and I'll feel good about it and maybe I'll do something else at some point. I'd say that's very possible. Yeah. Um, I don't, again, how to say this. I don't, um, for me personally, um, there are certain constants in my life. For, For example, poetry is a constant in my life. It has been since I was 12 years old. And I don't worry about it. It, it, it takes care of itself in a certain way. I, I, when, a, when, a, uh, when a poem shows up, um, uh, I do my best to honor that and to write that poem the best I can. But that's about it. You know, um, the way I have uh, worked to uh, write poetry is I, I've never in my life sat down intentionally to write a poem, wow. not once. That's amazing. What I do is I read a lot of poetry, and I read a lot of philosophy, and I read a lot of other interesting stuff. I'm constantly intellectually engaged with the that part of the world, and um, and. So, so I have one foot in that part of the world and one foot in, in, in the non-literate part of the world. And so that seems to work for me and it's a sort of an alchemical reaction that just sort of happens now and then. Um, and I've done that all my life. Um, and I'm not, so I have a poem called The Last Poem I'll Ever Write in which um, it imagines um, uh, a situation where I write a poem, and, I'm, and it's true, every time I write a poem, I'm convinced it's the last one I'm ever going to write. Wow. <laughs> and then, but that's okay. There's no, there's no need for me to write poetry, I, you know, but it's not, um, and then, but then something happens. I, 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 I see something, I hear something, a piece of music, infiltrates into that site and those words and and that comes together and then I craft that into a poem because for one reason or another I've studied a lot of languages I, you know all that stuff I've done I do a lot of crossword puzzles all that stuff adds up to the ability to do that when when given the opportunity and I think the same thing is true for everything else in my life. Running a coffee shop, I do some of it well, some of it not so well, but it's seeing the opportunity and saying, oh, we could do this and doing it as best we can Um, and letting it take us where it takes us. It's not, you know. Yeah. When you're talking about poems, I feel like you're almost talking about chant like that there's forces like higher forces that are like maybe you wouldn't say this way but coming through you like there's a poem out there that and I think you know for a lot of creative pursuits music my husband's a musician so he says this that he it just you it's like you have to get it out and it's coming from somewhere else does that sound I think that's I think it's a very good metaphor for Mm -hmm. it I don't I mean it may or may not be spiritual. I don't right, know. Right. 
<laughs> I, I tend to, you know, I tend to use that language myself because it's difficult to describe it any other way. Um, it, I was just reading uh, Marcus Aurelius, and this is a big part of his uh, philosophy: is this idea that we are very, 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 very small parts of nature. So there's all this other stuff going on that uh, brought us into being and will extinguish us. And um, so uh, for me, I have to um, be uh, respectful of all those other forces that are not me that are making this stuff happen through me. Um, and it could be natural causes, you know, it could be supernatural causes, um, but um, without having direct experience of the supernatural, um, to me, I like to be some, I like to, to be somewhat skeptical, but at the same time, admit that it's not me. <laughs> and so I'm deviating a little bit from the questions I showed you. Um, do you think, I mean, you said that you have, that you enjoy kind of having this creative side and this like practical side, maybe, I don't know if that's the best word for it, of running the coffee shop. Would you ever want to just be doing poetry? You know, I think, I'm thinking of people that have day jobs and they do something creative on the side and some people are totally happy with that, but some people just want to leave their day jobs and just be doing their creative thing full time. It's a, it's a really good question. Um, and I, I think the answer is no. Um, and I think that only because this is going to get me into trouble. Um, there is a world of poetry out there with quote unquote real poets in it. And a lot of it is encased in an academic environment. Um, with, I know a lot of real poets. Um, I went to Columbia in the 70s because I wanted to write poetry. And, and my best friend from Columbia is one of America's greatest living poets. And, and, and I studied with and met the the whole New York school scene. Who was that? Curious. Jeff Harrison. Okay. Oh, he's so Look good. Him <laughs> he's awesome. And um, and uh, we're and and I suppose I could have um, followed that path. Um, I'm not saying my reasons for not following that path were totally my own. Or conscious but I'm very grateful in hindsight that I didn't because I'm not part of that world and it gives me and again I'm not ambitious in that way it was only about five years ago that I first started sending poems out to be published and it wasn't entirely um, whimsical decision, but it was pretty close. It was just like, oh, I have these poems. I like what's happening. Maybe I'll send some out and see what happens for the first time in my life. It never occurred to me that that was something that I needed to do with my work. And um, 
And because of that, my work has been able to change, number one, because you, it's easy to get locked into what you did when you were 25, if that's what everyone knows you as. Not that there are artists who don't do that, but I'm saying that's a temptation. Um, and then there's a lot of stuff that surrounds being a full-time poet that is not necessarily productive stuff. And um, so I get to evade a lot of that just by being a, a man in the world yeah. who happens to do this stuff um, or not. And so there's, there's very little um, distraction built into it for me. I'm not, I don't have to, um, um, I don't have to prove myself as a poet to anyone you know I it just it just happens and either it's good or it's not and I don't I don't think of myself in in where I fit in the world of poetry I do the poems that show up in a way that is very satisfying to me it's, it's almost freeing it sounds like extreme I think so yeah. um and um yeah, so it works for me. So I don't think I would want to be a full-time poet. I think I would be a very different person now if I had taken that path. Because yeah. I know myself well enough and I know my tendency towards grandiosity <laughs> <laughs> and giving myself credit for stuff that's not really mine and all that other stuff that... Um, nobody ever does that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fascinating. And I'm thinking about just the fact well, what is the what is the book the poetry book called that you published? That um, you it's published? and it's not out yet. Okay. I actually just saw the book proof yesterday. Mm -hmm. The publisher mailed me a copy. Mm -hmm. It's coming out June fifteenth, and it's called Storyland. Right, Storyland, and maybe you could tell everybody because we'll public. I'll try to publicize this at least as much as I can. What's the website that you have for it? It's um, Storyland-poems-keith-dunlap.com. Okay, and Storyland is the Right. And the, and the collection itself is centered somewhat around some of the ideas we've been talking about because mm -hmm. the poems, the, the name Storyland is meant to suggest that we live in a kind of storyland and we tell ourselves and others narratives about ourselves in order to justify our place in the universe. And yet those stories serve us, but they also sometimes fail us. And that's kind of what the collection centers around in many ways. The way stories serve us and then also fail us. We tell ourselves stories sometimes just to convince ourselves that what we're doing is, if something's holding us back, is right, which I think often happens a lot. And so you said something that I was, oh, um, the publishing. So, you know, a lot of people, there are a lot of people probably out there that write poetry or create music or do art, but very few people actually submit and I think, or to, you know, to somewhere, which probably has something a lot to do with fears of rejection, you know, fears of failure, or maybe a fear of success. And I'm wondering how you, you know, if you felt that, I'm sure you're probably, you did feel something, you talked about fear. How did you get through that or push through it? Well, um, I guess I, there's, there's, I have two aphorisms first to drop. The first is that, you know, if you can take constant rejection, you can do anything. Yeah. Because honestly, 
Now, and yeah. I believe I'm really good at what I do. I, I truly believe that. I mean, I've been working at it for 50 years. Oh, that's amazing. And, and you know, I, I've read a lot. And I've uh, done a lot. And there's a lot of craft and... Um, and intelligence and humor and uh, good decisions made in my work. So I think my work is pretty good. Um, but even so, I mean, I get many, 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 many more rejections than I do acceptances. Um, part of what ha helps me in there is that I, I was the editor of two literary journals, pretty good ones. Um, and so I kind of know what the process is and who's involved in that process. So I don't take it too seriously. Huh. It's like, I've seen, I've been to the sausage factory. I've seen how the sausage is made. So it's not about me. It's, you know, there are lots of different people out in the world making these decisions. So the fact that I get a rejection from X magazine doesn't mean that my work isn't any good at all. It just means on that day, the first person to see that poem or poems, for whatever reason, had an idea in their head, it wasn't what they were looking for or something along those lines. Yeah. And, and I've, this has happened many times where something I've, I've um, um, submitted to a, a, a lesser magazine quote unquote, has then been accepted by a much better magazine where there was a much more intelligent reader. Mm. So, yeah. and then, and, and also, and I haven't been, I don't, I, I don't think you can be too selective about where you send stuff out. Don't try and control the process. Just send it out, send yeah. it out, send it out. Don't worry about it. You know, I mean, I send, you know, I submit to, uh, you know, over a, a, a year, I probably send out a hundred submissions wow. a year and get, which is a very, um, the, I probably get 20 acceptances a year, which is very high. Yes, that is. But that still means I get 80 rejections. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, you yeah. know, um, so don't fetishize one magazine and think if you get published in that magazine, that's success. And that's the second aphorism that that I'll hand out is um, if you want to be successful change your definition of success mm, yeah like it doesn't matter mm. if if it's a good poem it's a good poem and it's written and getting it printed in a magazine is almost secondary mm. like no one's gonna read it <laughs> <laughs> to be honest think about how many people are gonna read that little literary journal. Mm -hmm. It's not that important. You know, the important thing is for me is to do my best with the, the gift I was given, which is this poem that arose that I was custodian of when I was custodian of it. And when it's done and I'm sending it out, again, I'm just kind of the custodian of it. I'm just like trying to help it find a home. Mm -hmm. and if it can't find a home, you know, and there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of poems in my collection that's being published that were published in really good literary journals 
but there's also poems that are in that collection that weren't published in anywhere and that's okay yeah. you know my publisher didn't care my publisher thinks they're all really good poems and that the collection as a whole is really good and that it's worth being published i'm just thinking i'm putting on the spot a little bit but would you be able to recite some or any a poem or part of a poem before we wrap up because i would love to hear sure um i'll try and it's from memory so i can't guarantee that it's okay. perfect but i'll i'll try and recite the opening poem which is kind of meant to be kind of a prelude to the whole collection. And it, again, it sort of touches on a lot of these topics, actually. It's, it's kind of perfect. That's great. So it's called Headlights. The rain so unrelenting that the rain and the sound of rain are one pragmatic roaring. A cataract through which the logging truck ahead of us laboriously climbs. On one side, the blur of an angry forest, crowding as close as it can, like a mob pressed against a chain link fence to watch us slowly die. On the other side, we can only guess that the precipitous decline is a bottomless well into which our car could be tossed like a coin. So why then does my husband persist in trying to pass the lumbering truck as if each indivisible moment were a torture from, what, from which he must immediately escape, pulling out in suicidal hope that nothing is coming our way. It's beautiful. It's a, I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I think I was trying to figure out what where it was going. And soon, my husband and I mean you just the suspense. I mean, so perfect place to end. Unless you have anything else you'd like no, to add, I no. think. Thank Again, you. Thank you. Thank so you. Thank you. Much. Thank you so much. This has been. Honestly, one of my favorite interviews I've done so far. So, thank uh, you. I was very worried that I was going to be the worst. <laughs> no, I, I didn't expect that it would take this turn. It was brilliant that it did. So thank you so much, Keith. Yeah, thank you.